This morning we're continuing our series through the book of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. And as uh, the other Pastor Jeff alluded in the pastoral prayer, we're going to talk through what it looks like to be generous and think of those that are in need. And, and so I'm excited to share that with you. Just one quick announcement. We have some special guests, visitors. We also have a special guest from a, a sister church, the Branch Church in Corvallis, Oregon. Didn't know he was going to be here, but Doug and uh, Bridget Payne, wave, wave your hand, Doug. We pray for you regularly, Doug. And uh, they're visiting. He's up here for a wedding, and so they stopped in. So we're glad to have you as we're uh, making our journey through Nehemiah. So let me, let me ask a question as we begin. <clears throat> How much of your day is filled about thinking uh, about money, your money, either the, the money you have or the lack of the money you, you wish you had? You know, money is still a very popular topic to talk about. In fact, if you were to go to a bookstore and walk through, that would probably be one of the largest sections in the bookstore uh, about money and what to do with it. You know, there's a book that I, I'd found on Amazon and saw, uh, I've not read it, but it's called The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. Or there's uh, Benjamin Graham's 1949 classic, The Intelligent Investor. So if you were to spend your time in a bookstore, you could find a lot of information about money, and, and primarily a lot of it is about how to, to, to make it grow, you know, to invest, which is not necessarily a sinful thing. So let's say you, you, you do go there, you do find some resources, and, and your money does grow. In fact, you take the advice to the point that you become a millionaire. You, 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 your money has grown to that point. Would you feel guilty that you're a millionaire? We had one honest answer. And I wonder, I, I just really do, if there's strands in evangelical Christianity in churches that feels like it's wrong to have lots of money, you know, it, and that we should feel guilty. Depending on, on where you grew up in the country and when you grew up, I, I think this could possibly be an issue. I, and I'll be honest with you, I feel it within myself. I, I think even sometimes I have a, a weird view of money, even as a pastor. And, and, and having too much is not good, or, or making too much is not good. But in the Bible, in all the Bible, there isn't really a, a, a passage that would teach that having a lot of money is a sin that we should feel guilty over. Instead, as, as Pastor Chris looked at a few weeks ago in 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's the, as he said that, that Sunday, it's the love of money. That's the issue, not having a lot of it. In fact, Paul says later, seven verses later in that passage, as for the rich in this present age, recognizing that they're rich people in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so he's not dismissing rich Christians. He's not saying don't be rich. Don't, don't give it all away necessarily. No, the goal for rich Christians is not to be haughty, to, to be arrogant, or to even to think that this is it, this is life. But the hope is to hope in God. So there's always a balance when we look at money and we look at its use for our lives. We could have, you, you could have lots and lots of money, millions of, of dollars and give it all away and still not follow God, and you're not in any better position in his eyes. 
What we learn from this passage this morning in some ways is generosity. We learn, we learn that, that indulging ourselves at the expense of others doesn't please God. That's the issue that is facing God's people here in Nehemiah chapter five. So here's the, here's the main idea. If you write anything down, this is what you should write down this morning. Generous Christians look to surrender their rights for the good of others. Generous Christians look to surrender their rights for the good of others. So two points as we walk through, fighting for the rights of others and surrendering your rights for others. So Nehemiah 5, I'm gonna read the whole passage here at the beginning and then walk through uh, these verses, uh, stopping along the way for the rest of our time. Nehemiah 5, if you haven't turned there, if you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the seats. Um, you will be kind of confused and lost and probably easily fall asleep if you don't have a Bible open in front of you. So make sure that happens here this morning because I think it'll serve you well. Nehemiah 5, even for the kids here, by the way, even for the kids. Good to look at the Bible, all right? Nehemiah 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children, yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been, been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent. It could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of our King Art, the, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens of the people and took from them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox 
and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I've done for this people. So first, this morning, we will look at fighting for the rights of others. If you were here last week, we we noticed in chapter 4 the opposition of Sanballat and Tobiah and and the fear that they were stoking in God's people to stop them from building the wall. That was opposition that was clear from the outside going in. And now we turn to chapter 5, and Nehemiah is now finding opposition to God's people from inside the city. Why is it when one opposition seems to fade a little in life, another opposition comes from a drastically different direction? I don't know. Just when the people can get some relief from the danger from the outside, now they realize there's danger inside the city. And in verse 1, we hear about this. There was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. This outcry from the people inside the city because they they can't take it any longer. The the problem has grown to such a level that they're, they're crying out for help. The same word that is used, outcry, was used of Israel when they were in slavery in Egypt, crying out to their God. So it's at to that level where it is with the people. And a strong outcry usually indicates righteousness and justice are now absent. So the gravity of this situation is is underscored in that term of, of crying out for help, for rescue. What is serious here is that the, the wife, the wives of the men are the ones crying out. And this is serious and significant because culturally speaking, it was men. They were the ones that were to speak out. But it had gotten so bad that now the wives were crying out for help. And where are the men right now? Where are the men right now? You can answer back to me. They're building the wall, right? And so, again, men, show love and appreciation for your wives while you're out working. They're trying to feed their kids. Why? And, and we found out, again, right, in chapter 4, the opposition comes Nehemiah doesn't say, hey, you go ahead and go back home. No, it was dangerous, actually, to leave the city. He required them to stay in for their protection. So these men were gone from their wives for for days, weeks, months at a time. And the wives are holding on the fort. And they're crying out because they don't have food to feed their kids. And so the women are left at home tending to the families. And there's three levels of difficulties that the people were facing. First, most people at this time probably had big families. And so for all the work that had to do for Nehemiah in the city, they were not able to produce the grain. I mean, if they're in the city building the walls, who's taking care of the fields? And they don't have enough to feed their family, to stay alive. And so they had to buy grain. And because they were poor, it was difficult for them to buy the grain. And so second, their problem of the lack of grain was solved by mortgaging their property to pay for it. So they're essentially just kicking the can down the street, trying to just survive. And third, the farmers had to borrow money to pay tax that was levied on their estates. This was a heavy burden for the farmers. Tax was levied on only fields that with, with produce. 
And as a result of the horrible circumstances that they're faced, did you, did you catch what happened? Their children were taken into slavery to pay off their debt. Just pause here, kids. Your life is not that bad. We'll keep moving on. Their children of the debtor were taken into service of the creditor to work off the debt that they had accumulated. And so who are they crying out against? We, we want to just think through and just naturally think, well, it's the enemies of God that are doing this, right? It's, it's just horrible to read. Who, who else would do this to God's people? Well, it wasn't the enemies of God. It was their Jewish brotherhood. They were the ones taking and expecting interest and payment no matter what. See, chapter 4 is all about the opposition to God's people from the outside, from the enemies that are looking to stop the wall from being built. And chapter 5 is all about the opposition on the inside. Just like the newspaper cartoon character said, we have met the enemy and he is us. It isn't the enemy that everyone would expect. It's their own people. And it exhausts them to the point that they cry out for help. And you can hear the desperation of their voices. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. And then they say, but it's not in our power to help it. They're saying there is no power in our hands to do anything about this. And the thought that one Jew could act against another Jew enraged Nehemiah. See, indulging ourselves at the expense of others does not bring glory to God. And Nehemiah's rage shows what righteous anger should look like for humans like us. You know, he says in the passage, they were redeemed at one point through the concerted effort of the Jews. But now the Jews were doing exactly the same thing now again to their brothers and their sisters and subjecting them to humiliation. And so Nehemiah says, I like just the bluntness in verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. He's angry. When was the last time you were angry, not for yourself and your family's suffering, but you were angry for the suffering of others? Someone that's not connected to you in a familiar way, in a family bond. Does it anger you when you see people mistreated? Even people that don't look anything like you. Are we able to step out of our own shoes, our own issues, and put ourselves in the place of others? In Romans 12, 15 and 16 gives us some tools on how to do this. Paul writes, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Sometimes the right response to the suffering, the unjust suffering of others is anger, is righteous anger. 
And as Christians, we're to identify with ups and downs of not just in our life, but those that are around us, people that we live among, among us, especially those that live closest to us. A righteous anger shows that we love someone more than we love ourselves. And righteous anger clarifies for us what's most important. And then it helps us to, to, to know how to love appropriately. John Stott wrote, Love never stands aloof from other people's joys or pains. Love identifies with them, sings with them, and suffers with them. Love enters deeply into their experiences and their emotions, their laughter and their tears, and feels solidarity with them, whatever their mood. And so what we read here in verse 6 is, is Nehemiah is entering into the lives of those who are suffering injustice. But he's also a human, and he recognized that his anger could, could very quickly go sideways in a sinful, unhelpful way. And so what does he say there at the beginning of verse 7? I took counsel with myself. It might be helpful to underline that, think through that. I took counsel with myself. The, the literal idea here is that his heart was ruled. It, it looks as though with an initial outrage, he's now saying, I, I, but I gained uh, control over my emotions. He's still angry, okay? But he has controlled righteous anger, it seems. I mean, Nehemiah had every right to be angry over the sins that were being committed by, by the wealthy Jews against the, the poor Jews. They had done a very wicked thing, but Nehemiah wasn't right to fly off the handle and rail against them in anger. He, he rules his heart. He composes himself, and he leads with careful composure so that there can be a heart change with the people. I mean, think what, what good would it have done for him just to just unleash in anger? How does that work in your own home, by the way? Yeah, you don't want to admit it in front of everybody, right? But I mean, when your kids do something and it's very serious and, and you just unleash, you know, like a volcano, does it, does it get the, the necessary change that you're hoping for? It doesn't in my house. And it doesn't in these groups of settings here as he's leading these people. And so he, he took counsel with himself. I think that's so helpful to us. Uh, I, I ruled my heart, which means it's possible for us to gain composure so that he can bring about the right change. He says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his, uh, his brother. See, from the Old Testament law, it was okay to loan money, but you were not to loan it with, with expecting and exacting interest. And, and ultimately, these people were seeing other people, poorer people, and they were exploiting them rather than they, they see them as fellow members of the people of God. And Nehemiah isn't going to stand for it any longer. And then he says, I held a great assembly against them. You know, as we looked at last week, the, the, the first day since the beginning of the rebuilding stopped, the work stopped when they had to gather everyone and, and equip them essentially for war, right? The, to have the, their weapons and their tools. Well, now Nehemiah in wisdom as a leader says, we're going to stop work again because this is so 
vitally important. We have not, not an outward enemy anymore. No, we have an inward enemy that is destroying one another. And he holds a public meeting. And he needed to weed out the evil that was in their midst. Otherwise, it would continue. See, what good are our evangelical ministries constructing walls against the evil of our opposing secular world if within the walls the so-called people of God are indistinguishable from the people of out? What good is that? What, what good is it to preserve a, a separate Christian identity if Christians behave just like non-Christians behave outside? That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you're really unleavened. So Nehemiah is going to clean it out. He holds a covenant member meeting and he's going to address the issue. He's going to deal with this cancer that is infecting the whole of the the people of God. And he says in verse 9, the thing that you're doing is not good. Are you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Friends, walking in the fear of God means taking God seriously. Our God is a just God. He doesn't just simply do right because he chooses to, but he does right because that's who he is. God is right and does right, and he does right all the time. But the nobles and the officials are not acting right, and he says it's because they're not walking in the fear of God. They act unjustly because they have set up their lives in the fear of themselves and their needs and the fear of others and what they think of them. And they're functioning from that way. And he asks, he says, no, you need to walk in the fear of God. See, walking in the fear of God asks, what does God feel about this situation and how I am to act? How does the gospel speak to this situation in my life? And even more so, not just the the idea of, of acting in the fear of God, he says that their conduct was a horrible witness to those outside. They're they're acting opposed to God with no thought of what God thinks, and and then in doing so, everyone else on the outside who could hear about this would realize this is horrible. See, as the people of God, they'd have been entrusted with unique testimony to the nations. They were to declare what God is like by their actions, by their words, how they lived their lives. And so if the surrounding unbelieving nations saw them behaving this cruelly towards their own people, how would they ever be persuaded of the uniqueness and the reality of their faith? Why would they ever want to be one like them? I mean, who would believe that their God was kind and merciful and loving and compassionate if they acted totally different than their God? So what about us? It's not just for them. How do we act 
do we have such a witness to our neighbors and our coworkers and our family that they think more highly of the God we serve based upon how we interact and treat others? How we look out for those that are poor, that are in need? How we talk about our, our own church? Do you talk about your own church in a way that attracts people to church? Or do you talk about the people in your church or the church so that an unbelieving friend says, I don't ever want to step foot in there? How about this searching question? Are some people outside of the church because I'm inside of the church? How are we doing? Are we willing to fight for the rights of others who can no longer fight for themselves? Are we aware of the needs of others? Or are we so consumed with ourselves and our needs? You know, this means we have to listen to others. It means we have to get to know others. And that means we have to spend time with others. We have to be willing to just listen to them, even if they say things that seem crazy or maybe off balance. We don't just dismiss it. We listen. And we listen with a heart that that is willing to fight because God has so blessed us that we're willing to step up and fight for them and fight for their needs. And when we're willing to fight for the needs of others, that leads to the second point, we we usually have to surrender our rights for others, surrender our things. Look at verse 10. This is number two, surrendering your rights to others. Verse 10, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. You notice the humility of Nehemiah here? He speaks so candidly as he deals with this problem. He confesses in front of the congregation that he and his companions and his servants had lent money and grain to the farmers. And that he was to blame for some ways what's happening. It's important to see that that nothing is said of the debt slavery in his confession, which means that he most likely never took any Jews into debt slavery but he still had, as a leader, contributed to the problem by loaning money and expecting payment plus interest while the men are working on the wall. In fact, he goes a step further. Look at verse 11. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. They're to give back so that they're made right. And the amazing thing in this passage is that you don't see this this battle. Maybe there was. I don't know. Nehemiah is writing it, but we don't see that. They begin to understand what Nehemiah is saying and teaching them, and they agree. They say, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. These these men hear the charge, and they respond with humility. And so what we see here is good leadership by Nehemiah and faithful following of the people. 
But Nehemiah won't just leave it there. No, he calls and he says, the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. Verse 13, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. See, the shaking of the garment here, the fold of the garment was symbolic in nature, a common method of using a day to reinforce a concept or idea. And this robe Nehemiah shakes would have had little pockets where personal things could be kept. And he wants these wealthier citizens, the rich people, to know that if they do not keep their pledges, what they had promised to do, God will shake them out of his pockets. This implies that the Lord in whose name the oath was taken would shake them out of any possession they had if they continued to treat God's weaker ones in this fashion they would expect that they would no longer be God's special possession. So he's holding them to the commitment they're making. Moreover, verse 14, from that time on I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year. And then he says there in the end of 14, I and my brothers ate, another ate the food allowance. See, he, he had been given, it was legally correct at that time to get a food allowance, taxes from the people so that he could live. And he's saying, we're not going to do that any longer. The other governors before did that, and they lorded over them, but we will do that no longer. And then in verse 16, I also persevered in the work of this wall. So we're not going to take any allowance that's given to us, rightfully so, and I'm going to still work. He wasn't, Nehemiah wasn't one of these supervisors that stood off in a chair and pointed and said, now go there. Nehemiah was with the men. He was working alongside them. And he's not taking any of this uh, allowance that's coming to him. Acquiring no land, but being there to work. And he makes it clear they're not to be supplied with any taxes. And, And Nehemiah frees himself from the privileges that belong to him. The rights that he had. He surrenders his rights for the sake of others. And Nehemiah knows something better than money and food. It's love for people and faith in God. And and you might think, well, if he's not going to take the food allowance, the money, the taxes that would rightly do him, then he'd probably just water everything down then and not really just, not not live in in the way that he would live earlier and that everything would be less, right? You're you're getting steaks for dinner one day, the next you're going to get like ramen. But that's not what we read. Verse 17. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came from us in the nation. See, another example of the outside scene. And now what was prepared at my expense, each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Nehemiah pays for all of it out of his own pocket. Can you imagine slaughtering an ox every day? I mean, we don't know how big his herd of oxen was. He talks about in this a 12-year period. 12 years he served. 12 years multiplied by 365 days is 4,380 ox. It's a lot of meat. So whether he had a, a herd that big to kill 
or not, he had money to spend and he was going to spend it serving others. Not to mention the six sheep per day. That's 26,000 sheep in 12 years. See, what we see here is Nehemiah is as generous as he is wealthy. Friend, it's not a sin to be wealthy. So it's not a sin that you need to confess and feel guilt over. It's as long as, as a Christian that you're using your wealth for the advance of the gospel as God leads you. The point of this passage isn't to condemn wealth and riches at all. But if you do worship money, you need to repent and trust in Christ alone. If you use your money to abuse others to benefit yourself, you're not treating them as you should, as Christ would have us, and you should repent. You should turn away from that. If you do not love God and love his people, if you're not looking and seeking to use your money to advance the cause of the gospel through the church, you need to repent of your self-centeredness, of how you view money, and trust Jesus. Trust him with your life and your needs. You know, I wonder, I said this earlier, but I wonder if our hearts go out to people who we know are in need. Or do we kind of block our eyes and plug our ears when we find out people are in need? Do we find that our heart grows cold to people who are in need? I mean, answer that. Only you can answer this. Do you find your heart growing towards, uh, heart growing cold towards others who are in need? Do the needs of others have any voice amid the crowd of desires in your head all clamoring for attention? See, the, the voice of others, the outcry of others had such a voice with Nehemiah, yet he responds and the people follow his leadership. And in that sense, he points us to Christ who cares for the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, as a church family, we need to continue to grow and cultivate. We're not going to be perfect in this, but we need to grow and cultivate concern for others that leads us to action. And, And this doesn't mean that we should just start a new ministry. Please don't give me busy work. Just do it. All of us, just be the church. Right? Do you, do you know of any older members in this church family who have a difficult getting out of their house for, for church or for shopping? I know a number of you do this. You know, we've had even evening services occasionally, and there's older members that just can't drive at night. Are you, are you ready to say, we'll go pick them up? What, what a small way, but, but a great need for them that, that is appreciated. Or those that just can't get out to shop or have other needs. You know, what, what, what would it look like to establish a relationship with an older member to just encourage and serve them? To think of them as more important than us. What about members who are single parents? Being able to, to step out and serve them when they have needs. Watching their kids. 
See, the list can, can grow of, of areas of people in need, but that, that requires us to get to know people. You know, you can ask us occasionally as pastors, but my answer is usually say, hey, just start talking to people as you sit in this room. And if you say to me, I know all the people sitting by me, then sit somewhere else. That'll really mess with me, by the way, because I usually look out and you're all in the same spot. So mess with me. Sit somewhere else. Get to know other people. Build relationships and listen for ways that we can serve others. You know, one small and yet quiet way that we serve others in our church and our community is through the Benevolence Fund, which we'll, we'll take here this morning. That's helping members in need who, who can't afford basic stuff, even paying for housing and medicine and other bills that, that helps. And that can be quietly done if you don't want to be up front and you want to serve in that way. But, but my concern is for you to think through of a way that you can live out a godly concern for others, particularly for people who are in need, who are poor, who are struggling. You know, are we a church that is willing to accept people coming in who are in need? Meaning we get to know them and build relationships, or do they come in and see, wow, I, I feel like there's, they're all just wealthy and I don't know if I can connect with them. See, that, that, the onus is on us to go and accept and build relationships and to serve them. And so I pray that we would be a church who's marked by concern for needy people around us. And pray for us as leaders that we'd be aware of this, that we would be self-sacrificial in our in our leadership in this, to be aware of these things and communicate to the members. And that as a church, we would be ready and able at any point to step up and serve those who are in great need. All right, one last thing. This happens occasionally in sermon preparation where I'm done with my sermon and then the Lord, well, brings something to my attention. But I think it's helpful you know, as you, as you go through the Old Testament, as you read through that, the people of God at this point would understand from, from the law and from earlier, they would understand the year of Jubilee. Have you heard that before, that term? Really quickly, the year of Jubilee would happen every 50 years, and they'd have a, a, this celebration on the 50th year, and that celebration would last all year. Sounds pretty amazing to have a celebration for a full year, right? So every 50 years, Jubilee was proclaimed, and, the, and, and this was also significant, all the debts were canceled. All the slaves were freed. All the accumulated wealth was redistributed. Everyone then would return to their hometown and they would take a whole year off. Amen? I mean, it was a fantastic celebration for the people of God. And we learn about this in Leviticus 25. Count off 49 years and then verse 9. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the 7th month and the day of atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout the land. And so it begins on the day of atonement. And the Day of Atonement was huge, right, for understanding for God's people, that they're made right with God, even for a moment. And they would look forward to this day. And, and, and the 50th year would have the Day of Atonement and the year of Jubilee, and they celebrated freedom. And, and, and to me, it's, it's significant. It's interesting because we see this release of, of this burden that was there. And I, and I think we have hints at it in verse 12. It says, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. They gave back all that they had and interest. 
And it would have been in that moment, in, in, that, in that, that outpouring as, as Nehemiah stands before the crowd, it would have been jubilee for those that were crying out, right? So think about this in your own life. Think about the financial obligations that you're on the hook for right now. The bills that you have to pay. Mortgage, rent, fees, debts. Think of all of it. And think of the trumpet sounding and it's all canceled. It's gone. Think about your workplace and the obligations that you have. Every horrible job that you have to do. The things that you just despise at at work. Every deadline hanging over your head. Every piece of work that's required. Every homework assignment. Every client that you have to satisfy. Every demand from your boss. Students, workers. Now, and the, the, the trumpet blows and it's all canceled. It's removed. It's taken away. It's gone. Would you want to celebrate? All seven of you. I'd want to celebrate. Mortgage is gone. But what would happen the rest of the 49 years? People would forget, right? I mean, you forgot what was sermon two weeks ago. That's what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 5. They had forgot about what this meant and what the significance was. They, they weren't supposed to take interest from their countrymen. They weren't supposed to enslave fellow Jews. They had forgotten. They weren't living as they should. I mean, this, this pattern that we see in the Scriptures continues to this day in our own lives, Right? We, we come to the realization of who God is and what He's done, and we feel enthused and encouraged, and then Monday happens, and we forget. But even fast forward hundreds of years to the Gospel of Luke, and, and, and Jesus is in, and He's preaching. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's quoting the Old Testament, because He anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, And he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed. In verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know what Jesus is talking about? He's talking about the year of Jubilee. And what was Jesus' mission? He came to preach the good news to those who were most broken, the people who couldn't save themselves, to see their destitution before God. Those that though they stand before the wrath of God for their sins, and he, became, he came to proclaim that the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, had come. And it wasn't about freeing their obligations, financial and job, and the deep cultural injustice that they suffered. No, he came to bring freedom from sin, the bondage to sin that they couldn't see themselves to bring about a full and free atonement so that they could be made right with God forever. That's what Jesus came to do. And we're going to celebrate. We're in Jubilee today. You know, every day is Jubilee for Christians. And we come to today, the first day of the month, And we come to a table, to a meal, 
to remember all that Christ has done for us. And we're saved from eternal death. And we're given new life. And we're given a new name, a new frame, a new place with Him in the heavenlies. And this meal is significant for Christians because our faith in Christ is strengthened when we, when we take this meal together as a covenant family. We remind ourselves of the covenant with one another and the covenant with our Lord, and we remember that all of our debts are paid. And we don't only just sit and listen, like that's the sermon, right? We don't only just hear with our ears. No, we, we get to see in this meal the bread and the juice. And we get to touch the tokens of his suffering and death on behalf. We get to have that a part of us. It's so much more significant. And Jesus is teaching us in this meal that just as bread and drink nourish our temporal lives here on earth, so his crucified body and blood truly nourish our spiritual lives. And so the Lord's Supper is very significant for us as Christians. I'm going to have the ushers come. As they're coming, I'm going to share just a few things. I want you to understand, if you're here and you're new or if you're regular, that this meal that we're going to partake is only for Christians. Because only Christians understand and accept the gospel. And so if you're if you're not a Christian, you're not following the Lord in baptism and not faithfully connected to a church family, we encourage you not to take this meal. That you would come and find us. It's one of the pastors. We would love to talk through the gospel that you would understand and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to pass out, the, the ushers will pass out the elements, but I'm going to ask you, you guys are getting really good at this, but we're going to partake together. Okay, just like when you sit down at a meal, Wait for everyone to be served, and we'll partake of the meal together as a family, okay? I'm going to pray now, and then we'll pass out. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. That his body and his blood shed for us on the cross redeems us from our sins and places us in the family of God. And so may we remember you as we eat and drink as a church this morning. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.